Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left Burn, a podcast brought to you by thebattleground.eu. I hear the revolution has started in the UK, the elections have happened, and the whole thing is getting burned to the ground. Yeah, if you listen to some Starmerites, that's certainly the uh, theory. The left Starmerites, as I sometimes call them, they're, they're talking as if victory is imminent and the Messiah is here and so on. And everything will be wonderful as soon as Starmer forms a government at some point in the next 18 months. Did Starmer legit say that Labour is the new Conservatives? Yes. He also said that he wants to uh, do what Tony Blair did on steroids. The uh, whole Article 4 thing. Yeah, Clause 4, which was the clause for nationalisation that Labour was committed to, and Blair famously threw out as soon as he, he had the chance. But yeah, Starmer is sending signals all over the place, but people who are smart enough can pick up on the right-wing signals. And there's a lot of people who support him fairly blindly, and they just don't want to see see what he's saying when he says, we're the real Conservatives now. We're the party of, you know, fiscal restraint, and we're the party of middle-aged mortgage man. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's very interesting just in the respect that he seems to have taken up a lot of the strategy, not only of Blair, obviously, but also of Clinton. Clinton's big change, the change that Bill Clinton wrought in the political environment of the United States or the political landscape of the United States, if you want to call it that, was that he essentially adopted the platform of the more moderate wing of the Republican Party. And this was very confusing to them. In a way, I almost felt sorry for them in the, in the moment because it, it happened in the context of the tech bubble, the first big tech bubble. And then the Republicans were very confused because they were like, wait, wait, that's our platform. Clinton's like, no, it's mine now. And he had this very sort of charismatic thing, too, which people found, people on the right found very upsetting. So what, just to, just to clarify for those people who don't live in the UK, which there was a sort of electoral moment that happened recently, what was it? These were the local elections, which are usually held around May every, every couple of years or every year or so. These weren't across the entirety of the UK, but in, in a lot of constituencies, people were voting to elect councils and, you know, who will be the government in their local area, effectively. The Conservatives lost the most. This is the, the fast overview. Labour gained significantly, but not as great as they could have. Meanwhile, the Greens and the Lib Dems did fantastically well. That gives you a broad sense of what's going on. The cephalogy around this suggests that Labour got a, a, a decent swing in the vote, but not enough to form a government come a general election. So it, it could be that we're in coalition territory or minority Labour government territory. This links up with a couple of things that I think would be interesting to talk about. The larger frame for this discussion is an article that was published back in the November-December issue of the New Left Review by Dylan Riley and Robert Brenner called Seven Theses on American Politics. It's been the basis of a lot of discussion uh, in the New Left Review, in Jacobin, and throughout the broader leftist press, in which they tried to parse the changes in the way American politics has happened. And there's a number of, of dimensions which we can discuss, but one, the sort of main thrust of, the main thrust of what's being discussed right now is class dealignment, the idea that there's been a shift in the course of the last take-your-pick number of years, 20, 30, in which voters have had a decreasing propensity to vote for parties that notionally reflect their class fraction. In the context of the United States, this is 
a sort of two-way shift that's going on where lower income working class voters have shifted to the right, have increasingly voted for the Republican Party. This really got started in the 80s with the so-called Reagan Democrats. At the same time, there's been a shift to the left among managers, more educated people, somewhat wealthier people voting for the Democratic Party. And so the, the issue is what's behind this. And Brenner and Riley have a a sort of thesis about, or they have several, they have seven theses about how what's going on is what they call political capitalism. There's a change in the way that capitalism works. It's no longer sort of war of motion between a kind of notionally more leftist party and the Democrats, notionally more rightist party and the Republicans, but that in this era of sort of uh, slow growth, that what's happening is a funneling of political influence to the state. Obviously, political influence and economic power have been paired one of the one of the one of the articles that I was reading about this pointed out, and I think quite correctly that if you asked uh, Fernand Brodel, the great historian of the Long Array, he would point out that it was it's been going on since the 15th century. But Brennan Riley's idea is that the sort of distribution of economic goods, so to speak, through the political system has changed in a kind of a fundamental way. Another element of this is a paper that was released by the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in, in 2021 entitled Left Behind by the Working Class. The argument of that was that the discourse has commonly been, with respect to European politics, that social democratic parties have been receding in their influence, which is certainly true, but that the beneficiary of this has been the radical right. And what they argued in this piece was that's an incorrect assessment of what's going on. On the one hand, social democratic parties have receded in their influence. On the other hand, the radical right has expanded. But they argue that the expansion of radical right influence has been taking up voters that had heretofore been voting for more mainstream right-wing parties. And that the recession of influence among social democrats resulted from their voters kind of moving to other parties on the liberal left, particularly parties like the Greens. And I think this is kind of interesting given what you were just saying about who actually benefited in the recent council elections in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. The more liberal left parties outside the outside the Labour Party have benefited from the kind of discontent in the country. Certainly more compare, you know, comparatively if it, you look at the size of those parties, the uh, starting point for something like the Greens is far lower than Labour. And yeah, they've I think they've tripled their number of councillors and they have majority council as well as a couple of minorities, uh, minority governments locally, and that's a lot. That's an awful lot for the Greens. Whereas Labour, it shows that they did well on the back of Tory disaffection, but that people are not infused by Starmer, which is not surprising. Who yeah. is voting for the Labour Party now, and to what extent is the disintegration or the receding of the influence of the so-called Red Wall constituencies? an indication that Labour clearly is changing in the respect that Starmer wants to be the left wing of the Tory party. I mean, okay, Starmer could just want to be the Lib Dems. That's, but he seems to, his rhetoric seems to be much more along the lines of we want to be left Tories as opposed to the Labour Party of old, certainly not the Labour Party of old. That died in the era of Blair. But the question is, who is the Labour voter now? And Here's an interesting thing, and, and then I'll let you actually talk about the question I just asked. One of the funny things about the Riley and Brenner piece is how they define the working class. Basically, as far as they're concerned, the working class is anybody who doesn't have investment income or is self-employed, which comprises, at that point, 
80% of the population is the working class and my heart surgeon is, is working class on that on that account of thing. I mean, assuming that, that he's getting most of his money from doing heart surgery, and I would assume so. So, but that seems weird. And I mean, there's an interesting divide in the United States between people who are high education and low income, people who are low education and high income. But the, so, but talking about the UK here for a moment, since there really has recently been a kind of testing of the waters electorally of the sort of post-Sunak uh, political environment in the UK. Well, I guess not post-Sunak because Sunak is still there, but who is the Labour voter now? And how, to what extent has it changed? To what extent is this change a viable option for Labour being a thing? I think Labour's rhetoric gives gives clear indication of what the what they're trying to do and who they're targeting. And, you know, the talk of middle-aged mortgage man is, it gives a clear indication of what they're, what they're working on. They are basically targeting disaffected conservative voters who are more middle class than, say, traditional Labour voters in the north of England. Probably more kind of, it could, it could be petty bourgeois, but it could also be upper middle class, I think. People who are Pretty pissed off at the state of affairs because the disarray of Tory policy on the economy has hit their mortgages pretty hard in terms of interest rates. At the same time, that threatens the value of the homes. And at the same time, there's high inflation, which hasn't been brought down yet. So there's a kind of myriad uh, set of economic pressures that the middle classes in the UK are no longer insulated from. And so as a result of that, they're willing to vote against the Conservatives by the looks of things. And Starmer's strategy is very much to appeal to them. That's why he's calling himself the real Conservative and, well, he's calling Labour the real Conservatives now. There's something else in there as well. In terms of defining the working class versus the middle class, uh, certainly the definition that they laid out in their article is, is far too broad. But it is interesting, when you look at opinion polls in the UK, about 60% of the public identifies working class. And it's certain that that isn't the size of the working class. It's pretty big, but it's not that big. I imagine what you have is a lot of, a lot of people who are effectively self-employed and working in areas like you know electrical work and plumbing, that kind of thing, who may well be making a very good salary, but they, are, they see themselves as working class culturally. Um, because they, you know, they don't have the the same kind of assets or cultural capital, or a higher education in the same way as I don't know a management consultant or any kind of managerial figure. Really, it's interesting to talk about it comparatively between the UK, Europe, and the United States. But it's also hard to draw parallels, at least between that side of the Atlantic and this one, just because politics in the United States is organized somewhat differently. You know, we never developed a real labor party in the United States. For a long time, the labor movement tried to sell itself first to the Republicans. They weren't interested. Then to the Democrats who were interested, but only on a kind of racialized basis. So organized labor in the South was very much, and, and to an extent in the North too, I mean, let's not absolve them, organized on the basis of a racial hierarchy so that organized labor in the South was part and parcel of their project was maintenance of the power of white workers vis-a-vis non-white workers. 
and and that was the case in the north too it played out somewhat differently and and the political environment in the northern part of the united states was always somewhat different than it was in the south but but in any case we never had a labor party per se unlike most of the european industrialized states so the, there's a whole bunch of things and it's hard to parse I, I think we'll be pulling this apart for for weeks to come but i think it's interesting looking at germany so germany is a good test case for this in the sense that the spd's uh, electoral share has been declining i think they got about 20% in the last election to an extent that has been they've bled voters to the greens the greens now are it's it's unclear what exactly they are as a party i mean they they started out as an environmental party and then they've come out defending the brown coal industry which is extremely pollutive the cdu has clearly bled voters to the afd end of the spectrum i think they got 32, 33% of the vote in the federal elections that happened in 2021. That is to say the CDU did. The CDU has had difficulties because of Angela Merkel's relatively moderate stance on immigration. And that's been one of the big sort of things. I mean, if you look at German politics, there in a way is this paradigm case of a leftist party split off from Die Linke that was meant to be left populist and anti-immigration. It, it didn't sell kind of one of the points of the of the study that the Ebert Stiftung put out was that that kind of left populist anti-immigration thing just doesn't fly although it's very tempting because of this narrative that we're losing working class voters to the extreme right the way to get them back is traditional leftist politics plus anti-immigrant hysteria what's the labor party's stance on immigration these days well predictably starmer has pivoted rightwards on immigration He's still, he's still to the left of the Tories on these issues, but that's because the Tories are so extreme right now, trying to deport people to Rwanda, trying to set up barges to detain people, trying to uh, crack down very hard on boats of refugees coming over the channel. Very odious stuff. Uh, but Starmer is refusing to directly, morally or politically oppose any of their policies. He's mainly critiquing them for being inefficiently racist, which is pretty, pretty telling. But this is, again, it. there's a long history of this in the Labour Party. The immigration uh, debate, if you want to call it that, has always been pretty bad. It was pretty bad under Corbyn, too, sadly. Uh, there were big pushes back and forth around freedom of movement, open borders, and some kind of, like, limited but somewhat open border policy. Yeah, the spectrum is pretty bad on immigration in the UK right now. You know, once again, just speaking to the US perspective, this is something that the Democrats have, ever since Hillary Clinton, have embraced. And partly because they were getting hammered by Trump, who... And this is another sort of interesting thing, I guess I should point out, historically, for those people who don't follow the minutiae of American politics, that people are like, oh, you know, Donald Trump, he's this radically anti-immigrant thing. Which he did, I mean, calling Mexicans rapists to court certainly was a raising of the temperature of the rhetoric, but it was not a rhetoric which was foreign to the Republican Party historically I and mean, for a long time, ever since Nixon, at the very least, their line has been, your white women are being threatened by these brown people, we have to keep the the brown people out and the black people down or whatever. I mean, that's been their their thing for decades. And... Clearly, there's been this element of their racial politics. With So in that respect, Trump has been very much along 
has not really deviated from that line, although he's probably been, I mean, the whole wall building thing is a little bit of a more material expression of something that's been going on in the Republican Party for a long time. But the Democrats have also engaged in this sort of rhetoric, and Hillary Clinton certainly did. And there's this sort of feeling among more conservative Democrats that we have to have sensible policies. Whenever you hear like sensible policies, that almost invariably is we need to do something about immigrants and we need to have austerity. That's essentially all the Democratic Party has left at this moment. I mean, there's there's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and there's Bernie Sanders at the sort of far left fringe of the Democratic Party. But they're, I mean, it's, it's funny that they're kind of the stalking horse of a certain element of Republican rhetoric because they're not terribly influential in, in what the party actually does. In the same way, I mean, I think there has been a, a sort of underlying motivation in a lot of parties on the relatively speaking left of European politics to have a sensible politics toward immigration by which they really mean we must be hemorrhaging votes to the right because of immigration. So we need to take some kind of stance. We need to take some sort of hard line. And I, I think pretty clear, I mean, the whole Brexit or one sort of major motivation of Brexit was, oh my gosh, there was all these immigrants coming in and they're diluting the you know, British culture and pretty clearly, explicitly or implicitly, the Starmer right wing of Labour Party has really embraced that. Yeah, Starmer's strategy is very, is very, very similar to the new Labour one in terms of uh, triangulation of uh, right wing policies, certainly rhetorically, because um, a lot of the policy is still up in the air. Yes, Starmer is, is definitely appealing to a kind of soft anti-immigrant fervour in the country. And to the extent that we've had Brexit, there's not going to be any hopes of him doing what Blair did, which was supporting freedom of movement within the EU, which was the only the only progressive immigration policy that Blair had, actually. Uh, there's a lot of uh, revisionism on this now that says that New Labour ushered in an era of uncontrolled, unfettered mass immigration, and we were flooded by all manner of people. And that has diluted the country's culture and all the rest of it. And we're now this multicultural mess, as the right would say. You hear right-wing people in the United States talking about how the Democratic Party has just leavened their electoral base by bringing in tons and tons of immigrants. Like, they've, they're, they're pretty explicit about it. So, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting the way that that maps on to the UK as well. Yeah. And the irony is, is that Blair and Brown basically laid much of the basis for the hostile environment and the detention regime that we have in the UK. Blair put refugees in detention centres, in camps effectively, and ramped up the demonisation of them as asylum seekers, as they're often called over here. And Brown introduced the points-based system, which is what Nigel Farage was campaigning for in 2016. It was just not applied to EU nationals. So the Tories came in and completed that picture. And Starmer isn't going to dismantle all of this stuff, because why would he? He's, he's got to look after a right-wing section of voters that are coming over from the Tories. He's going to take for granted working-class voters. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Because he thinks he could probably rerun what Mandelson came up with in the early 2000s. But... The truth is that a lot of voters are, are exhausted and a lot of voters are tired of this. They're tired of this game. 
They've seen it so many times at this point. It's possible that Starmer will form the next government, but he may only be a one-term prime minister. There are a lot of interesting questions you could ask about this, both in terms of what's going on in European politics right now. I mean, we haven't even really gotten to what's going on in Italy, where the left has essentially collapsed. And what you have is a a neo-fascist or post-fascist party running things. And question then, one of these things we should probably talk about in future iterations of the podcast is where the hell all the left-wing voters in Italy went to. But putting that aside for a moment, also, there's another debate that's going on in the New Left Review, and, and we can talk about this more next time, but we should probably allude to it now, on the question of feudalism and the question of neo-feudalism. The question is, is capitalism in the process of transitioning to something else? Capitalism is basically premised on the reproduction and expansion of capital, but then a lot of the economic activity that takes place in the industrial and post-industrial world, also elsewhere, but just to, to limit it to that for, for the purposes of immediate discussion, is this collection of these uh, revenue streams. There's an article late last year about the critique of techno-feudalism in the New Left Review, and then there's been uh, a number of other pieces connected to that or critiquing that. And in fact, Brenner, in a talk that he gave, also sort of referenced the term feudalism, although I think he came down on the side of, of capitalism. I know Dylan Riley has also addressed the question, and I, I'm, as I recall, he came down on the same side. It's, it's still traditional capitalism, although, of course, of the political variety. When they talk about political capitalism, the only thing they really mention by way of example is the increasing influence of lobbyists, which is not a new thing. Maybe for the next round, we can talk about what is the UK economy, what is the German-French economy really like in terms of do they fit into a political capitalism model? And how does that influence the political, you wouldn't necessarily call it gridlock, but the change of political fortunes that has gone on in terms of the depletion of, of votes for social democratic parties and the, the rise of the populist right. Like, to what extent is this connected to some sort of notional change in economic organization? Or has, has that really happened? My inclination is to think that there is a really significant historical transition going on, but it's within capitalism. And I'm suspicious of talk of feudalism just because Certain people have been talking about a return to feudalism as long as I've been politically conscious. <laughs> There's a really sort of interesting conservative dimension to this, too. I, there have been a number of books on the right in which they argue that the free market system is going away and it's being replaced by techno-feudalism that's being run by liberal elites, I guess, is their take on it. But uh, in any case, that's, you know, we can parse that more next time around. For now, that's all we have. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Left to Burn. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you and goodbye.